So for 20 years plus, I had the privilege of being a youth pastor, uh, kind of the second chair. And uh, as the second chair pastor in a church, uh, there's, there's some benefits to it, all right? Uh, one of the benefits is you can uh, look at the lead chair, and when he does something you don't like, you can go, man, I'd have done that better, all right? Uh, it's pretty easy to do that from the second chair, right? It's the armchair quarterback kind of principle. Uh, but also I was, uh, you know, the Lord gave me a, an awareness enough that the longer I was second chair, the more I realized that maybe there were some more dynamics to what's going on than I actually realized. And, and also I began to go, you know, Lord, may I never be a lead pastor. <laughs> and I have to be the one to make those decisions. And to give these type of messages, which I'm unfortunately or maybe fortunately forced to give this morning. Ah, God is good. <laughs> All the time, exactly. Uh, this morning, I, uh, I uh, am forced to do to my uh, journey through 1 Corinthians to uh, begin what is now going to be a two-part uh, message. It was originally a one-part message as of last night, about 6 o'clock. I uh, became a two-part last night after that, so uh, anyway, and that's why in your bulletins the title of the message is different than what is in your sermon notes. Uh, so a two-part message on uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, which the first 16 verses deals with a pretty interesting uh, topic and one that forces me to dive into the topic that I am today, uh, dealing with head coverings and specifically women in ministry. And so uh, I am going to take two weeks to cover this particular passage. And, and really today, I'm not going to really dive into the particular, the, those verses at all. Uh, instead, what I feel like I need to do is uh, kind of do an introductory perspective uh, before I get there. Uh, the reality is this topic in our culture, in our Christian culture, is, uh, is really a hot topic. <laughs> it is a hot button issue it is, um, uh, it is something that, uh, you know, I, a few months ago I preached a message on homosexuality and what the scripture teaches about that, and that was a difficult one to cover. But in reality, most in our church, especially Trinity Alliance and in the evangelical world, we've kind of settled that issue for the most part, and, and we're just trying to figure out how do we navigate this in culture. But the idea of women in ministry and our perspective on that is still in full battleground area in our evangelical churches today. And so I step into this, and uh, I, I, I kind of stepped in, I put a toe into homosexuality a few weeks ago, uh, but this morning I am going to dive in to the topic of women in ministry. Uh, the reality is, is that in the Bible, there are many passages that are pretty simple to understand. Uh, much of the Bible, if we just read through it, we'll understand what it's saying, and we'll understand how to apply it to our life. However, there are other passages that take much greater effort to, to figure out what it's talking about. And then there are passages that even with much effort, we still struggle to really understand what it's saying. The role of women in ministry has several passages like that last category. 
Uh, passages that are so difficult that even with much effort, we still struggle today to really understand what it means. The reality, again, is that God's word is at times mysterious. True, God himself is a mystery. And for us to recognize that it doesn't matter how long we live on this earth, and uh, we will never fully understand God. And we will never fully understand his word. There will always be pieces that we just quite can't quite get. It's, there will always be pieces that are a mystery. However, just because God's word is a mystery, it does not mean that we are not accountable to seek understanding. To, to do the hard work. The, put in the effort to try to figure out what God's word does mean. But it also means that we must be humble when we come to passages that are difficult. That we, we can't just kind of come to conclusions and then just tell everyone else that they're wrong. Or if anyone ever tries to challenge us, we, we just know oh, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. And label them some name or whatever and then just move on with our life. God's word, I think, uh, in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, Paul writes this phrase, and the sentence is about when we celebrate, what days to celebrate God, what days do we get together to worship. And at the end of this section, or part, in the middle of this section, dealing with that, he says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And in these areas of gray... In these passages where they're difficult to understand, let each of us be convinced in our own mind. But also recognize that someone else may have a different conviction and that that's okay. Because God is going to hold us accountable individually and as a church for what he has convicted us of not what he's convicted other churches of or other Christians of. Our job is to follow the Lord's direction in our life, personally and as a church, no matter what the world says. So this morning, I hope to, as I dive into this topic, to open up the discussion of women in ministry. Because it feels like to me so often this topic is not a topic of debate. It is a topic where people are simply defending their perspective and seeking to destroy those who think something different. They're not willing to sit down and talk about the nuances of these passages. To, to, to have some humility and recognize, you know what, maybe I've got this wrong. It requires us, if we're going to have an open discussion, to have humility and to respect those who have a different perspective. We, we cannot allow fear and our tradition to cut off debate. And in the midst of this, if we're going to have open discussion, we have to trust. We have to trust God. Trust that, you know what? He knows that this is a difficult issue. That he knows there's ambiguity here. That he knows that there's going to be people with different opinions on it. And that that's okay. God can handle 
the debate on this issue. He can handle it. So because of the topic and because of the introductory nature of this message this morning, I am sorry, uh, but it's going to be a little bit, well, a lot bit more technical than I usually am when I'm preaching up here. Uh, today might be classified more of a teaching instead of a preaching. But it, it, with the content that I want to get through, it requires me, unfortunately, to, and again, I say unfortunately just because I myself, I don't like to teach when I'm here. There's times for teaching, but I like to preach when I'm here. I want to inspire you guys. I want to share you guys, with you guys the love of Christ and help you to catch a vision for what that is and then to take it into your life and live it. And so this message won't be, it's going to lend to that kind of a message. So I, you're going to get teaching this morning. So uh, hopefully you aren't bored. <laughs> I'll try not to yawn too much myself. Uh, all right, so hot button issue, women in ministry. The traditional perspective of women in ministry is that women cannot teach men. Matter of fact, they cannot teach anyone over the age of 12 in some churches. Women are to be remain silent in the church. Church worship service, we shouldn't have women speaking or praying or doing anything. Covering, they should have a covering over them, a covering of authority over them. They need to be in submission to their husbands and the men and, and the elders of the church. They are not to wear jewelry or anything that would draw attention to them and shouldn't have braided hair. I know. Ah, there's one, yeah. A lot of jewelry out there this morning. On the other hand, the liberal perspective believes that there should be no restrictions on women. That they should not have to submit to the submission's a bad word. And then they shouldn't have to submit to their husbands or really anyone else for that matter other than Christ. And that they would have total autonomy, that they can make decisions on their own and do whatever they want in ministry or in worship or in the home. Again, these two sides do not debate the topic of women in ministry. They just defend and destroy. That's the tendency. So, but why do they do that? Why is this such a hot topic? And let me address a few of those. First of all, it's because of the deep convictions that we have. The, the reality is everyone, uh, uh, generation, uh, what is my generation, honey? I am, I am, an, I, I, you're too tired? Gen X, I'm a Gen X, right? I was thinking X, but I was like, no, is that right? I forgot who I am. See, this is what this does to me. This teaching stuff, it's just horrible. Now, anyway. So I'm a Gen X, or anyone who's Gen X or older, I didn't want to say my age, that's why I said Generation X. Anyway, um, we have all grown up in the church, if we grew up in the church, believing that women could not be pastors, that, that women could not do certain, they were limited in the ministry that they could do in the church. Some of us, depending on our background, more extreme than others all the way to head coverings and silence in church to, you know, at least know they can't be pastors and they can't teach from, you know, from the pulpit like Lily did last week. And the concern here, the reason that this is a deep conviction is that we think this in our mind. We think if we are wrong on this issue of women, if, if that's not really what the Bible teaches, then does that mean that everything I believed or grew when I grew up is wrong? You see, it puts us in the position of, oh my gosh, what, 
what is real? What, did my parents teach me anything that's true? Right? And, and so we're afraid to run into this issue of women because of that. And so we'll hold a deep conviction because of our tradition. Second, we reject feminism, some of us. We think feminism, that the only reason we're having this conversation is because of the rise of feminism in our culture today. And that because of the rise of feminism, as we saw, talked a couple of weeks ago, it has done a couple of good things, but it's done a whole lot of bad things in the eyes of the church and what they're pushing and what they're trying to promote in our culture. And so because we as a church have taken a stance or we individually as a Christian have taken a stance against feminism, we think if we compromise, does that mean that we have to accept it all? The next reason this is a hot topic is because of what I would call the slippery slope, and others have called it as well. The the slippery slope, if we give in on this particular topic, then, you know, other changes are going to come from that, right? If this issue of women in ministry is purely cultural, don't we have to accept homosexuality as well? Because that's their claim, that this was just a cultural thing. And now it's not. It's a different culture, so we don't have to obey those laws or those perspectives. Finally, uh, there's some of us, and usually on the more liberal side of things, that reject patriarchy. They think that it's all bad and that patriarchy was about oppression and abuse of women. And so anything that comes from patriarchy needs to be eliminated and got rid of. And so they think if we limit women in ministry, if if we accept any kind of limits in ministry, then the question is, how, how do we promote women's rights then? The real problem with all of this is as can confusion over hermeneutical approaches. And I'm going to use this big word, hermeneutic. Some of you may know what that is, and others won't. Let me give you a brief definition. Hermeneutic is simply a strategy for interpreting the Bible. It's a way that we approach Scripture, and we try to figure out, in order for us to figure out, first of all, what did it mean to the original authors and, and those who are listening to the Word? And then, you know, how do we translate into something that means for us? Well, how do, how do we understand what the Bible is actually saying? Because the Bible was written thousands of years before we were on the earth, right? And so there's this gap, and so we don't understand all the language, and we don't understand what's going on, and so we need to dive in and have a hermeneutical strategy in order to understand what the Bible teaches But there's dozens of different hermeneutical approaches for the different types of scripture, for history books, for prophetic books, for you know, uh, poetic books, or the New Testament gospel books. I mean, there's just a whole lot of different ones. Some of the more famous ones are the historical grammatical strategy, the Christocentric strategy, the historical critical, the reader response. And I'm not going to go into details on those, but there's just names of the different, way, uh, different types of some of the different types of hermeneutic. So the problem is, with this issue, is having a hermeneutical approach that will allow us to understand what in these passages is universal, which is meant to be true for all people, for all times, in all cultures, and what is simply cultural. So it is just a word that was given to that particular culture in that particular time. We need a hermeneutic that will help us to do that. 
But with our traditional side and our liberal side, we tend to, instead of picking a good hermeneutic, we pick a hermeneutic that fits our presupposition. So in other words, if we think that women shouldn't be in ministry, we will find a hermeneutic which will support our interpretation of Scripture to say that then that, that passage is, is saying that women shouldn't be in ministry. On the other side, if we're on the liberal side of approach, then we're going to look for a hermeneutic that's going to allow us to, to say, well, this passage is just cultural and throw it out. And this is what we have seen. Let me give you some, uh, kind of dig into this a little bit more. The, the hermeneutical different approaches. First of all, the traditional, again, tends to look for a literal hermeneutical approach. They, they want to know what the Bible says. And they're going to focus just on what the Bible says. They, they don't want, they, nothing is cultural. In their perspective, they want to say it is all universal. Everything that the Bible teaches, everything that we find in the Bible is universal. It's for all people to obey for all time. Of course, it's pretty easy to find the problem with this. We can't and we don't do it. We, there's no way for us to obey everything that Scripture says that we should do. It's, just, it's impossible for us to do it today. A, a guy named Jay Jacobs actually wrote a book, The Year of Living Biblically, where he actually went through the Bible and wrote down over 700 laws, things that the Bible, just looking at it very literally, saying this is what the Bible tells us we should do in all of these different situations. And then he spent a year trying to live that way like to read the book it's I haven't personally read it but I've heard it's pretty a uh, pretty good book but um and kind of fun book actually uh so take a look at that but the reality is still I mean it makes sense right we we can't possibly live out a strictly literal perspective of scripture in the issue of women in ministry women in the church we don't even follow that not even in this issue I mean how many hats are the women wearing this morning? Got a couple. Got a couple. Very good. Very, yeah, we've got a couple. How much jewelry? We already talked about that. How many of how many of the ladies in in our church are wearing jewelry? How many are are have their hair braided? Artie was just talking. You were just talking to me. What are you doing? You're supposed to be silent in church. <laughs> so the reality is, is that the traditional side of things, they've already made decisions in their interpretation of this issue of women in ministry. They have made interpretive decisions of what is cultural and what is not. And they said that, you know, wearing jewelry or braided hair, that, that's just a cultural thing. We don't need to follow that today. However, again, getting up and preaching, now that's not cultural. That's something that's universal. And, but they've made a decision in that process. Uh, uh, the other reality of the struggle that the traditional uh, perspective has is there's too many scriptures that like contradict their perspective that they have to deal with. Uh, these are, I, uh, the hermeneutical book that I'll talk about in a minute uh, uses the term breakouts. <laughs> They're breakouts in scripture or instances that contradict their favorite passages. Deborah and Judges 4.4. 4, if women are not to be teaching, if women are not to be 
preaching, if women are not to be in those positions, then why do we have Deborah in the Bible? And why is she not condemned by God? Priscilla in Acts 18.26. Why does Luke put Priscilla's name first? Did he forget the rules of the culture in writing in that day? That you always put the man first? The husband's name always goes first? Why did he put Priscilla first? Why did Paul put Priscilla first when he was listing them and talking about what great helpers they were for him in the ministry? And this strange apostle named Junia, which is a woman's name. In Romans 16, 7. These are, these are breakouts in Scripture that contradict the perspective that some in the traditional world would say that women should not be up teaching and holding any kind of leadership or authority positions. On the other side, of course, the liberal approach does, in essence, the same type of things. But they do it in the opposite way. They, they take a cultural hermeneutical approach and look for passages that they can just toss out. So they view passages, oftentimes, especially ones about women in ministry, and they just say, no, that, that is totally cultural, and they throw the whole passage out. The problem that they have is, you know, how do they decide? How do they decide which passages are cultural and which aren't? I mean, if you're going to just kind of start picking and throwing out passages you don't like, boy, you know, we could have a really, you know, popular religion, couldn't we? Right? With a liberal approach, there's, there's just too many slippery slopes. When you don't have a clear, concrete hermeneutic for why you're throwing out a passage or why you're deeming that passage cultural, then you have these, all these slippery slopes that you are going to slide down. That, because uh, uh, the reality is we just don't know. We can't, we can't defend why we're throwing away this passage and we're not going to throw away the other passage. So how do we know when to stop throwing out passages? Within the liberal approach, of course, there is potential for false teaching. Some of those false teaching, openness of God, has come from a liberal perspective, throwing out certain cultural things, basically saying that God can change. That's a dangerous and false teaching. Dangerous false teaching. Second would be sexual freedom. That, you know, premarital sex, well, you know, that was just a cultural thing. So we can throw that out. It's okay. I mean, this is a different world we live in today. I mean, they got married, you know, as soon as they were hit puberty, basically. So, you know, it's not really fair for us to think, you know, and I'm sure Scripture wasn't saying, oh, you, you got to keep those things in check, those hormones in check until you get married. If it's 25 or 30, it doesn't matter, right? You know, so we, again, we're just throwing out passages. Uh, and then, of course, love trumps law. And this is where... We've slidden into accepting homosexuality. That, you know, if love is the ultimate ethic, well then, yeah, you know, I mean, homosexuality is okay. So what we need is we need a consistent approach, a consistent hermeneutical approach that will help us to know what is universal and what is cultural so that we can be consistent in making our interpretive decisions when it comes to things and issues in Scripture that seem to be cultural in nature or have a cultural uh, aspect. I am going to suggest that that hermeneutic 
is what was written and by or created and written by a guy named William Webb. And he has described his hermeneutic as redemptive movement. He wrote a book where he outlines this redemptive movement hermeneutic. And the title of the book is Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. There's also another book that uh, I'm not going to be really pulling much from today, but another book that kind of gives us an idea or a hermeneutical perspective in regards to especially this area of women in ministry called The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. If you would like to explore this issue more beyond what I'm going to be able to give you this morning and next week, then I encourage you to pick up those books and read them. I will warn you, William Webb's book is it's theologically thick. Okay, it's not a thick book, but it's just it, it, it's a heady book, right? You have to really kind of work your way through it, but it, it's really good. So hermeneutic of redemptive movement. This is a hermeneutic that seeks to interpret Scripture in light of the culture in which it was written. As Webb says, uh, and a quote in the beginning of the book, he says, a redemptive movement hermeneutic distinguishes between cultural and transcultural components within Scripture. And what he means by that is that's, that's uh, transcultural is universal and cultural is just for their, that time. That's what he means by those. I used universal and cultural before. So that's what he means. Cultural means just for them. Transcultural means it's for all time, universal. It is committed to the rigorous and uh, methodical pursuit of assessing what elements within Scripture fall into one category or the other. Basically, this hermeneutic seeks to compare cultural morality versus biblical morality. In other words, what is happening in the culture morally at the time that the Bible was written, the passage was written? And what is the morality the Bible is giving, and how does that compare to the culture in the time that it was written? So I'm going to simplify this hermeneutic, and Webb would probably just be really upset with me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, down to four interpretive questions. I told you this was a technical message, message today. I'm sorry, but we're going to walk through this anyway. So four interpretive questions. First, the question, first question is, what is the cultural norm? The first thing that we do when we come to a passage is what is going on culturally? What is the cultural norm in which at the time that this passage was written? Right? So we need to do historical and cultural context uh, work in order to do that. Again, these are hermeneutical tools that we use to help to do that. Okay? And so we need, we need Bible dictionaries, we need commentaries, we need to uh, you know, understand history books and what was going on in the culture so we can find out what is happening at the time that this passage was written. So first question, what is the cultural norm? Once we understand what the cultural norm is, the next question is, does the Bible support, restrict, or reform the cultural norms. So support would be basically, they don't address, doesn't address it at all, or it reiterates what the cultural norm is. So it, it, it instructs to follow the cultural norm. Restrict means that they would, that the Bible demands rejection of the cultural norms. And then reform would mean that it encourages a more lenient perspective against that cultural norm. That's question number two. 
Once we understand that, so what is the cultural norm? How does the Bible, does it support it? Does it restrict it? Does it reform that cultural norm? The next question is, are there instances of radical reformation from that cultural norm? Are there breakouts, as he calls them, where it's not just a le- being more lenient to the cultural norm, but it's actually someone who's uh, radically freer than what the cultural norm would be? A breakout. And then the final question after we know those three things, is what is the overall movement of Scripture? This is why it's redemptive movement. What is the overall movement of Scripture? Is, is the Bible moving the culture of the time to something is more free? Or is it moving the culture of the time to something that is more restricted? Or is it just simply supporting what the cultural norm is? All right? Hope that makes sense. Moving on. If it doesn't, we can talk more about this in the future. Or just get the book and you'll be able to read it. Anyway. Uh, So now I want to give a couple of examples of how this is used in other issues other than women. And then we'll jump into the women issue, okay? Women in ministry issue. First of all, slavery. Again, the title of the book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. So I'm going to hit slaves and I'm going to hit homosexuals. We're going to look at those according to this hermeneutical practice. And how how does it measure up? I think all of us here would say that the Bible does not support slavery. It doesn't say that we should still be slaves and we should still have slaves, right? It doesn't say that. No one would say it does, okay? That's, so this is why it's a good example for us, because some in our history have thought that slavery was supported in Scripture. But we have moved to a point now where we realize, no, 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 Scripture doesn't support slavery, and there's a bunch of passages in the New Testament. Let's look at it. So what's that prog- progression look like? First of all, we need to understand what was uh, the cultural norm. The cultural norm was that slaves were property, and that they could be abused in any way they wanted to be, the owner wanted to abuse them. They could be, treat them with harshness and horrible treatment. They could make them work all these crazy hours. They, they, I mean, it was property. It was like, almost like an animal. They could do whatever they wanted with them. That was the cultural norm within which the Israelites were living. This continues all the way into the Roman Empire, although there were maybe a little bit more restrictions on that. It still was kind of the same idea, that they were property, they could be abused, they could be treated harshly. In the Old Testament, we see that God's word begins to give support to the slaves among them. It gives a a code of ethics, and I've got a bunch of passages here. I'm not going to read them all. Exodus 21, 20, and 21. It's in your sermon notes if you get, so all those passages. So you can read those at some point, and it shows how the Bible is telling the the Israelites to treat their slaves. And over and over again, you know, more time off for slaves. That the, the, the Hebrews should, and the Israelites should give more time off to their slaves. That they should allow their slaves to participate in worship. That matter of fact, they should even allow their, uh, the Hebrew slaves, right? I mean, if, if you had a, someone who was a Hebrew and he was your slave and you were a Hebrew, then every seven years you're to release them, right? To let them go back. And so they're not slaves anymore. Uh, provisions for slaves. In the New Testament, we see even further movement where uh, they are encouraged to, to, slaves are encouraged to get their freedom if they can. 
Also, we have a passage in Colossians 3.11 that talks about the fact that there's no distinction between slave and free. So there's this equality of the slave and the free man, that there's some sense in Christ that they're one, that they're the same, that there's no difference. And then we have this breakout in Philippians, or not, excuse me, Philippians, but Philemon. Onesimus, who's a slave, who Paul sends back to the one who is his owner and says, you know what? Don't treat him like a slave. I mean, maybe you should just give him his freedom and treat him like a brother in Christ. Total breakout of the system saying, no, 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 we're just going to totally throw out the whole system of slavery. And so we see in Scripture this movement from Old Testament through New Testament of continually giving slaves more and more rights and more and more freedoms to the point that we today and the church, we do not think that slavery is an acceptable form of employment in our world today and don't think it's what God wants us to do. And that is a right perspective. Now let's look at uh, homosexuality, the culture of homosexuality. What was the world's perspective? What was the cultural norm at the time that these passages were written? Homosexuality was fully accepted by these cultures. It was legal. Although maybe not always popular, it was certainly something that no one tried to destroy or get rid of. It was something that it was, you know, you could, in some sense, it was, at, in some cultures, it was actually expected that you would behave in a homosexual manner in some way. So the cultural norm is that homosexuality is accepted, it's legal, and it's even expected at times. However, in the Old Testament, we see that it is rejected as an abomination in Deuteronomy 23.18 and Leviticus 18.22. Furthermore, when we get to the New Testament, you would think, you know, if the Bible was trying to soften the perspective on homosexuality and that it was okay, that we would, just like with the slavery piece, we would see a movement to even more freedoms and more leniency in regards to homosexuality. But even in the New Testament, Romans 1 and uh, 1 Corinthians 6, which we covered uh, several months ago, uh, again, it's rejected as an abomination. In regards to breakouts, you know, instances where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone who is practicing homosexual is, is, is in this key role in, in Israelite or in the church in the New Testament, and, and they are celebrated and everything is great. There's none of that. There are no breakouts in all of Scripture. So it is clear, according to this hermeneutical strategy, that we can clearly say, because there is no redemptive movement throughout Scripture in regards to homosexuality, matter of fact, there is just consistent restriction, even though the culture is saying it's okay, the Bible comes in and says, no, that is a forbidden thing and an abomination. We can, we can I think, firmly land on the side that homosexuality is rejected by God. It's a sin and something we shouldn't participate in. So what about the issue of women in ministry? Let's apply this hermeneutic to that area as well. So first of all, again, the cultural norm. What was happening at the time? Again, both Old Testament and New Testament, we see that women were treated and were seen as property, very similar to slaves. That women had very few rights that they were oppressed and, and freely oppressed by men, and they could be abused and freely abused by men without any restrictions. 
However, when we go to the Old Testament, so we see that's the cultural norm, but what does the Bible say? In the Old Testament, we see that for the first time, women are given the right to an inheritance. In Numbers chapter 27, that, that they could actually inherit what their families had. Normally, that would just be a, a, a male thing. Just the sons would inherit you know, the, the blessings of you know, their family. But no, here, for the first time in Scripture, first time in culture, no, Numbers 27, 111, women are able to inherit. In Deuteronomy 24, we see that uh, there is, for the first time, women, are re- or men, excuse me, are required to give women a certificate of divorce. The point is, is that before men could just divorce women whenever they wanted. We didn't have to do, do anything, but they could just leave them hanging. I'm just gone and don't come back. And the woman's like, what happened? Where, is he ever going to come back? Right. And so the Bible comes in and says, no, 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 you can't do that, men. You need to give them a certificate of divorce. You need to say, no, no, we are severing this relationship so that they are free to be cared for by some other man that may marry her, them at some time. In the New Testament we see this amazing thing that Mary and Martha were the ones who were the first to witness Jesus resurrected. Okay, I mean, women at that time were not considered good witnesses. You couldn't take them to court and say, this is is my testimony. This is the one who's a witness for me. It's going to defend me. They would say, "Uh, that's a woman. Get her out. Her testimony doesn't matter. But yet, in Scripture, we even see women are witnesses. We also see in Galatians 3.28, again, this, this coming together, this equality that we all are one. There is no male and female. There is just, we're all one in Christ. But perhaps the most amazing thing is all of the breakouts in Scripture. And I'm going to list them. I already listed three of them earlier. Deborah, Priscilla, and Junia. But now let me, just in, just in 1 Corinthians alone, listen to this. We looked at chapter 7, and we kind of skipped over a lot of this, but I, I want to go back to it and, and address it because these are breakouts. In chapter 7, Paul says in verse 4 that women can demand sexual relations with their husband. That they have a right of ownership over their husband's body. Do you understand culturally this is not the case? Women had no say in what was going on sexually in their marriages. Only the man did. But Paul, just out of nowhere, says, hey, you know what? It's okay if you guys are sexually abstinent in your marriage. But hey, only do it for a period of time because I don't want you to, you know, fall into sin. And he says that the husband has the right over the wife's body and the wife has the husband right over the husband's body. And this is crazy. And and then later in the chapter, verse 13, Paul is saying, hey, wives, don't divorce your unbelieving husbands because who knows if you might actually bring them to Christ. Here's the deal. We just skip over this and don't recognize it. In the culture, the women did not have the right to divorce. Paul is addressing, he's saying, no, you do have, he doesn't say, hey, you don't have the right to divorce. You have to stay with your husband no matter what. No, he says, you can divorce, but understand, no, no, don't just divorce your unbelieving husband because you want to go and, you know, follow Christ. Recognize that you might be able to bring them to Christ. And so he's, he's not denying the right that they have to divorce. Marriage and remarriage in verse 28 and 39, women didn't have the right to marry or to be remarried or to make those decisions. That was something that was basically foisted on them. 
if, if a man wanted to marry them. In the passage that we're going to look at next week, in 11, chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says, when, talking to women, when you pray and prophesy in the church. We skip over that passage and go, no, no. See, Paul expected that women were going to be praying and prophesying in the church. The issue was not them praying and prophesying. It was that they weren't doing it under appropriate authority. We'll get there next week. But this is, again, radical in the time because women in the Jewish culture were not allowed to pray and prophesy in worship services. Matter of fact, they had their own room that they had to go in. They didn't worship even with men. One final passage in, uh, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit is given to each one. There's no designation of man or woman. And how are they given? They're given all of these, it goes down, it, words of knowledge. Prophecy. Again, this was not accepted in the culture. The Jewish perspective and, and religion would not accept these type of things. Yet Paul just writes them. And, and we, again, we miss them. Because in our culture, we're like, yeah, that's no big deal, right? But we miss them and read right over them. And often from a traditional perspective, we will ignore them on purpose to get to the other pieces of the passage that talk about women being silent and not being allowed to do these certain things in worship. So the overall assessment, if, if we look at this from this hermeneutical per perspective, if we look at the overall issue of women in ministry, it seems that the movement in Scripture is consistently towards more freedom and more rights. I will say this, that I'm a pastor of Christian Missionary Alliance. And so I am bound to support its stance on issues such as this. And so I wanted to communicate just briefly what the Alliance stance is on women in ministry, and, uh, because some of you may not know. Uh, the, the Alliance believes there's really only two limitations for women in ministry in the church. And those two limitations are they cannot be an elder and they cannot be the lead pastor of a church. All other ministry, including preaching from here, the pulpit, is allowed within the Alliance. Uh, I am, I'm glad to be a part of a denomination that has such freedom for women. Um, Next week, I'll get in a little bit more, maybe of my own personal perspectives on this. Uh, but it really isn't about my perspective. That is not my hope in, in dealing with this or approaching this, this, this issue. Uh, my hope is to communicate what I feel like is the, the scope of Scripture. To be able to help us to at least have the conversation. And I, I recognize that some in here are firmly on the side that women shouldn't be involved in certain ministries in the church, including especially maybe preaching from the pulpit. And I recognize that, and I get that. But, but can we have a conversation about it? Can, can we not just say, you know, no, that's, we're not, I have my beliefs, you have your beliefs, and we're done. Let's talk about it. I recognize that even my perspective, and even this hermeneutic, there's, there's many that disagree with it. Right? I recognize that. 
but, but I like it. I think there's some, there's some merit to it. And, and so I have kind of grabbed onto it, and I'm using it from my own perspective to help develop me. But I could be wrong. But the reality is, again, this issue is not a black and white issue for us to be dividing over. This is a, a gray issue for us to show freedom and love and hum humility to one another over. To recognize that yeah, this is a debatable thing. Now, certainly we as a church need to kind of figure out where that is. Now, because we're an alliance church, we know where that is. We've been given a directive by the Alliance National Office. This is the directive. Women can do all things in ministry except be an elder and a, and a lead pastor. Other th everything else, we're free from. And, and so that's how I operate. That's why I bring Lily up to preach and say she is preaching. Because the Alliance says we can do that. And I agree with the Alliance on that, and so I'm going to encourage it. But again, it's not about what I believe, and it's not about being dogmatic about this. It's about opening up the dialogue. Let's have a conversation. Let's see what maybe this is for us without fear. Fear that we're going to fall into some, you know, radical feminism or liberal extremism. You know, there's logical ways, and, and it takes effort, but there's logical ways for us to pursue these passages and try to understand them. Let's do that. Let's try to figure out what it means. Let's figure out how it, how it, where it's at. But once we come to a, a conclusion in our own minds, may we, be, may we allow others to have differing opinions and still be able to fellowship with them, recognizing that someday we are going to be in eternity, in eternity with them, standing side by side, worshiping God, because we will all be one, male and female, slave and free. Amen? Laura, you and your worship team come forward, please. Just uh, one final thought. Just I wanted to uh, let you know again that next week I'm going to uh, continue to preach on this past. Actually, we're 11:35. Maybe we should just end. I don't know. Um, next week uh, uh, I'll be addressing chapter 11 specifically. It is one of the more controversial and most diverse inter with uh, passages with the most diverse interpretations, and the impact of these verses on the church and women in ministry is quite profound. And so uh, if you'd like to hear more next week and you're around, then great, come out. If you're not here next week, we do put all our messages on uh, our website and on YouTube, so you can check it out there. Um, also, uh, I'm always up here at the end of the service, uh, not just waiting for someone to come give me a compliment. <laughs> I'm up here to field your questions and to have conversations and discussions. If this has spurred something in you and, and you want to talk more about it, Let's talk, all right? God is good. He loves us. We'll do one song and then we'll close our service.